Welcome to Oikos. How are you guys doing? Good. Are you guys enjoying the four G's? So if you have not listened to all of them, they're online. If you go to our new website, Jason did a great job updating that. All you have to do is click on Live Worship, and you'll find the archive of all the different messages and all the past series. So if you missed one of them, it will be good, because this is one of the ways that when you are in the middle of trying to know, what is it that the Lord is saying to me? What is exactly what the Lord is trying to to kind of open up my heart and receive them. These four things are great ways where you just pull back and reflect a little bit. What is it that I'm fearful of? What is it that I'm not listening to? Where is the lie that I believe about God so that he can speak truth into me? That was the whole reason why we did this for Jesus. So I hope that it's been beneficial for you. I hope that you're thinking and you're reflecting as we end out today with God is gracious so we don't have to prove ourselves. I think all of us in this room probably at one time or another have felt like we need to be vindicated. Do you ever feel like you have to be vindicated? Well, I do. So if you don't, well, then I guess you're all weird and I'm not. So... Um, when you're falsely accused, you feel like you need a little vindication, right? When someone says something about you that is not true, you know it's not true, all of a sudden your defenses come up and you go, let me tell you what's true. When you are misunderstood, maybe you send a text message and then the person comes back and you're like, whoa, that is not what I meant. And you go, I gotta tell the truth, I've gotta be vindicated. Or maybe when someone has hurt you. I think any one of us have probably felt this. Maybe it's intentional or unintentional, but in that moment you go, I need to be justified. I'm angry. And it justifies me to be angry at that person. Because it hurt me. So you want to justify yourself. But the thing is, is that you can't. You can't because God's already done it. He's already made you right. Even when you're trying to make yourself right, He's already said, you're right. All your mistakes, even if you add it to that equation of misunderstanding, guess what? It's already made it right. And yet we fight to justify ourselves. But the character of God is that he is a gracious God. Nehemiah talks about this in Nehemiah chapter 9. He says, you are a God of forgiveness, gracious, and merciful. Slow to become angry and rich in unfailing love. That's the truth. But somehow when we are in the middle of being misunderstood, that becomes unbelievable. So there's a better story about talking about God's graciousness, and it's probably a story that's been told in Sunday school, it's been told throughout time, over and over and over again, because it's a beautiful story. 
It really should be told more on Father's Day rather than Mother's Day, but we're going to use it today. And that's the story of the prodigal son. It's Luke chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up. Because I believe that oftentimes fathers can be gracious, but what we realize is that mothers exhibit graciousness often. And they're a great person to imitate. But in this story, it's the father who exhibits the graciousness. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. It starts out with, to illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. This is really just a great chapter. If you're in the middle of saying, I don't even understand what grace is, go to Luke chapter 15. God will tell you how much he wants you to be a part of this family. So in the middle of you thinking, oh, I don't know if I really have a place. In Luke chapter 15, God will say, you've got a place. I'll search you. I'll open up my arms for you. Because you have a place with me. A man had two sons. Verse 12, the younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, the younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. We really don't know what this wild living is. It's not totally depicted exactly what that wild living was. But obviously, he spent a lot of money doing it. But isn't this us? Just like the younger son, he uses all of the resources, talents, and everything he's been given to help his family? No. To help someone who's in need? No. Or self. Selfishness, self-centeredness. This is us. We don't like to say that it's us. Because we like to think, well, I'm not really like this guy. I would go to my parents and say, give me all my portion of your estate, and then I'm going to go spend it on in Vegas or something. But this is how we live our life. We often become very self-centered with our talents, our resources, because very quickly we go, it's not about the betterment of his kingdom, it's more about the betterment of mine. If I take care of myself, if I put myself first, life will be better. That's the lie. And when I say that, I think, not that I can jump into your minds, but that would really help a pastor if you could do that. <laughs> but I think when I say that, you may be thinking, well, that's not me. I'm not selfish. I don't just think about myself. I don't put myself first. Look, at, I do all this stuff for people. He doesn't know me. But I see a lot of people put a lot of money into it education, in sports, into their own activities, a lot of time spent on a hobby. But in all those conversations, God seems to be absent. 
Yesterday, um, Sarah and I got the privilege to go to a, a baseball party, and it was at a house, and they had an awesome pool. I would really like it. Not that whole pool, because it wouldn't fit in our yard, but a portion of the pool would be great. Um, wonderful family, opened up their house to people, in a way you could say strangers, because we only know each other from our kids playing baseball. Good, awesome people. We're sitting there, and I don't know how, I was sitting by Sarah, and I realized all of a sudden I got into a very female-oriented conversation. <laughs> Doesn't have to be, but that's what it was. And I was comfortable, so I just didn't move. So I sat there, and these moms started talking, and this one mom in particular started going, oh, we have our, our son and our daughter and this and that and this, and, and she, you know, she wants to be in gymnastics, so... I just don't know how I'm going to fit it in, but I think I'm trying to find the time to do this, this summer. And as soon as I can fit it in, then we're just, oh, we're just going to have to do it. In this whole conversation, and it was about 20 minutes, uh, kind of back and forth, my kids and these activities, blah, 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 and we're doing this and this. How many times did I hear them say, and I'm thinking about my life with Jesus. And it's not to put a judgment on this lady, because she's a nice lady. Because actually, I think we share her, her conversation quite often. We get so fixated on what I am doing, what my family is doing, what my kids are doing. And we start talking about all the things, my job, and how much I need, what I'm going to do next, and my health, and my... younger son. He did everything he could. And he said, I don't want anything in this family. I want to make my own way. Because I think it will be better. As we see in scripture, the money runs out. About the time his money ran out. You can supplement that. In. About that time, your time runs out. Your energy runs out. You're exhausted. Great famine swept over the land. And he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. Verse 16. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. It made me think he got hired, which means there was some money exchanged. Was he so fixated, fixated on self-centered living that he didn't even at this point change his habits? That he was still spending recklessly? That all of a sudden the pods that were, he was feeding the pigs looked good? Isn't that us? We don't even know the damage we're doing to ourselves because it's become our habit our natural way of life. Exhaustion and busyness goes, awesome, can we do one more thing? 
When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and I am here dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. See, we actually think, just like the younger son, that we can solve the situation ourselves. So once we realize we're overburdened and overwhelmed and exhausted, then we think we'll figure it out just by doing it ourselves. And we become more overwhelmed and overburdened because we don't see any grace. Because we haven't talked with God. Because we forgot his character. So we try to fix the problem in the way any sinful people would. We turn to the things that we think work. So maybe we excessively gamble and go and take a trip to Vegas. Because maybe we'll be blessed through a little bit of luck. Right? You guys, well, you probably have already condemned me once or twice. So, um, I've done this. Publishers clear the house. There's been times when we needed money, and I'm like, this is the time. <laughs> if I just put in our name this time, and then we get like a thousand email offers and all this kind of stuff, and Sarah's like, what is going on? And I'm like, well, <laughs> just a little bit of luck. Maybe we get drunk. Not that any of you have ever done that. <laughs> but maybe we get drunk so that we can escape the stress that our mess has made. But it never really works, does it? Because the only way drunkenness helps you is if you stay drunk. There's always the next day. Or we turn to porn, right? We try to live in a fantasy land because we want to escape our reality. What we do, we compromise our integrity, we live far away from the person that God made us to be. We forget that we have an identity as sons and daughters of the everlasting God. That's how we're like with the younger son. The same, same situation. We fall into the same category. We just do different things. But the response of the father is surprising. And for the people of that day, it would be shocking. Because when the younger son left, his father would have been dead to him. And his son would no longer be his son. Verse 1, so he returned home to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son and embraced him. Now Jesus is saying this. He's giving the characteristics of his father. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But 
His father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf and give back. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and is now returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. So the party began. This is our God. In the middle of us and our mess, and us trying to figure it out through whatever vice or stupidness we choose to jump into, the moment we turn to him, he runs to us open arms and embraces us. Tells us we're still part of the family. We still have an identity. It's his son and his daughter. He says, come on in and hold. You have a home and a place here. The lie that we believe though is that this is not our Heavenly Father. Because we often depict our Heavenly Father kind of the way we would respond if someone did this to us. So think about that vindication part. At the very beginning when I talked about being vindicated, when someone hurts you, how do we respond? We go, defriend, right? Unfollow, right? Go to your contacts, bank card, delete. They call, we ignore the call. Right? You just click it off. I'm not talking to that person. They don't deserve my time. They send an email, you classify it as a joke. That's what we say. The father probably thinks about us. So the moment when we are believing the lie that he's not a gracious father, because we believe that this is what he would do with the same thing that we would do, that's what he'll do with us. And then we begin to take the attitude of, rather than the younger brother, the older brother. And the older brother begins to see that they can't even join the party because they are so angry. And what they've just seen. And we start to fall into one of these four categories where we begin to not see God as gracious, not compassionate, not embracing. But a God will say, I've done with it. First one is restless anger. Verse 28 The older brother was angry and he wouldn't go in. So, have you ever got angry because you believe the good stuff that you've done should count for something? And no one noticed? You did that good thing? And you know what? Your wife didn't even say thank you. Right? Well, you have a theology where you begin to believe that when your relationship with the Father is that I do good and God will bless me. Anybody ever believe that? Thank you, five people. I, I believe that, so I'll have a confession. I have believed if I will do enough good, 
then God will bless me. As a young boy, I remember a Husker game, and they were losing to Oklahoma, and I said, if I do some good stuff really quick, God, help them win. I had a theology, if I be good, God will bless me. But what happens then? When you do that, the opposite happens, right? That's the theology. Ooh, what a scary thought about God. That he would be so immature, so ruthless. You count up all your actions and go, that's how much blessing you get. And all your bad actions, that's how much wrath and spite you get. That's not our God. That's the lie. But that's what Satan wants you to believe because when he gets you trapped into all the bad stuff you've done, then what do you do with God? You run away. You don't turn to him the loving and embracing father who's willing to take you back. So you say, I gotta go. I'm scared. And then we get upset. Or we get guilty, right? I must have messed up. Something bad happened. So if I wouldn't have done that, then that bad thing would have happened. We begin to start playing God. I need something good. Something good to happen for me. Then I get mad or even pissed off when I do a lot of good stuff, something bad happens. The problem is, is that we forgot that our good cannot contribute to our relationship with the Father. He took care of that with Jesus. His death and resurrection took care of any kind of good that we needed to do. Couldn't do it. So he sent his son because he's a loving and gracious God. He sent his son to do the good. He sent his son to take our path so that we can always turn to him. No, the door is wide open. But we get angry and it becomes restless. We don't know what to do with it. The second thing is joy, joyless duty. I mean, you ever kind of experience doing stuff, but you're not really joyful about it? Yes. Come on, like husbands, the honey-do list, right? Your wife wants you to do all these things, and you should do it with a smile. <laughs> It's not all these years I've got to work with you. All these years I've got to contribute to our family. All these years I got to have time with you. 
I want you to think for a moment about the best boss you've had or the best teacher you've ever had. Think about that best job or best teacher. Now, what was your attitude each morning as you're going to that work or to that school or that class? You're excited, I bet. Some of you would be like, well, not only because you're a glass half empty kind of person. But um, for most of you, if it was a great person that you're working for, someone who's loving and compassionate, would listen, would care for your family, would actually know your name, you would go, I'm excited about being there. I'm excited about what we're doing. Now think about the most terrible, awful boss that you've ever had, or teacher. Someone who was demanding, unloving, uncaring, probably forgot your name. What was your attitude each day as you went, either to work or to school or to class? You probably said, this sucks, right? I've been there, this sucks. I hate this. I'm doing this, and sometimes I even go, Lord, you know I'm doing this. Where's my blessing? <laughs> Do you not see the sacrifice I'm making for this awful person? Where is mine? So do we see God as a demanding, unloving boss? Or do we see him as a gracious, loving father? You see him as a gracious, loving father, then the things that you need for him should be filled with joy, not joyless. It's another lie that Satan digs into us so that we see God not as someone who really cares about us, as someone who's demanding. Anxious performance. So this is the third one. Restless anger, joyless duty, anxious performance. The son says, never once refuse. I never once refuse to do a single thing you told me. Whew. Right? So do you ever try to do good to prove yourself? Right? Well, look at me. Look at this good that I'm doing. Look how awesome I was in this little particular thing. Did you see that homeless person I helped out? Did everyone hear that I uh, gave a whole bunch of money to this one family? Did you know I have 10 compassion kids? Now, I don't have any of that. I'm just telling you. I'm giving examples here, so don't, you're like, damn, he's a full of himself. Well, that's what we are, right? When we have anxious performance, we try to do a bunch of good things so that all of a sudden they can be recorded. So that people can go, that person's really good. So I got to see this hand in hand. This is probably about, oh, I won't get the month right, but maybe nine months ago, we were at a funeral, and, our, and we are a family on mission, so we go together, our whole family. I just want you to get that picture, just breathe that in. 
Every circumstance, as a whole family, Amari and too. Everyone. We all go. And we went to this one, and this particular church is a little bit different than Oikos. So it's more traditional. And as I walked in, I realized I was underdressed. And immediately I looked and I was like, what kind of pastor are they going to think I am? They're going to know I'm a pastor. Here's my family. We all look different. <laughs> Maybe we should have wore something different to this crap. We kept, and of course, because we have four children, and they're wonderful little human beings. We were barely making it on time as we were dragging them across the parking lot to get there. And of course we couldn't park in the nearest spot because we didn't leave until we had to. So we were clear out there. And we were dragging them in and there were no seats in this place. We had to sit in the back, which is fine because I didn't want to sit in the front. Everybody's looking at us, and I'm thinking, they notice that we're late. What kind of pastor are you I came to a funeral, and we are late, and we don't dress right. Then we sit down, and because we're in the cheap seats, we don't have any candles, and they don't have any projection. So they begin singing songs, and we don't have anything, so we're just there. And they're good. Funeral songs. I don't know. And then all of a sudden, I hear this voice. And I'm thinking, who the heck is doing that? It's my son. And I'm almost ready to go. Pastor family, don't show people you don't know the words. And he was, oh, and he started just almost like he's in a jazz club. And I stopped and I looked at him, and all of a sudden, conviction hit me. He doesn't have anxious performance, but I do. We're here for someone who died and was supposed to be blessed. The family be blessed in the hope and resurrection that Jesus is our God. But I was worried about the clothes, about the time we arrived, about my son who was into it. And I was all worried about me. I need to imitate my son. Because he was there for the right reason. Anxious performance will catch you every time. Never once did I refuse. God, look at me. Look at what I've done. And don't look at what I've not done. Crowd comparisons. This son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes. So, the book that we've been reading through as we were doing the 4Gs, he mentioned something that I hadn't really caught before. This is the first mention that prostitutes are even brought up. 
the younger son didn't say it. The scripture didn't say it. Jesus didn't include it in that story. He just said wild living. We have no idea what that is. But have you ever done that? You want to look good, so you just put a little zener on it, right? It's not, it could be true, so it's kind of true, right? It's a possibility that it's true, so I might as well say it. Because it's going to make me look better. Some examples for you. You're not generous, and you know that you're not. You make about 70000 a year, and you give about 2000 to Jesus. But you found out that another person that makes 100000 a year only gives 1000 So you go, I'm much better than that person. And if I made 100000 I would give a lot more. Ever done that comparison? It could be the opposite as well. You can go, I'm giving so much, and I've only, I'm only paid like 30000 a year. Look how good I am compared to the person who's making 100000 and not giving as much. Immediately, you begin into the theology that God is counting up your good. Somehow that will make you righteous. That's not why you give. You're an adulterer. And you know you are. But no one else does. You are looking at guys all the time. Images, wherever you can find them. Long-lasting looks. Someone that maybe you shouldn't. You're having kind of a mental affair. An emotional affair. That you never touched anyone. It's all been up here. And then you find out that this other lady, she actually had an affair. So you just throw her under the bus and go, I can't believe she'd ever do that. Have you ever done that? Everybody's like, it's Mother's Day. Of course we're not going to raise our hands. What are you talking about? You serve in the church, but you don't like to. However, you have been there every Sunday for the past two months. And then you see someone else walk in who's never served. And you look at them and you go, I'm so much better than you. I'm like a real disciple. You're not. Comparisons. The moment that you start doing things so that you can gain pride is the moment you start seeing God as a demanding boss. Someone who doesn't care about you. Your view on God has been shifted. I'd much rather have someone sing the song and not know the words. Come and not dress like everybody else. Give what they believe the Lord has put on their heart to give instead of what their neighbor has been given. And someone who's worried about everybody else 
And that's what controls how they live their life. God isn't interested who's the most respectable person. He's interested in sinners. Jesus lived his life that way, and this is why he told the story. He told the story of the prodigal son because the Pharisees were saying, why are you eating with the tax collectors and the sinners? Why are you spending your time with those people? He told the story to remind everyone but the moment he turned to Jesus, his arms are open wide. Because he's a kind and a gracious, a wonderful, wonderful God. He doesn't count up your good, the good stuff that you do. He doesn't count up your bad, all the bad stuff that you do. He just looks at you. That was my name. This is me and Martin family. Be with me. And live like you're my daughter or son. Let's take a look at the story. My name is Greg, and this is my story. For a long time, I felt like I was living my life in a courtroom. Every day, I would wake up and begin the process of having to prove myself to my judge. Sometimes that judge was myself, and I would lay awake at the end of the day trying to count up the, the, my performance during that day, all the good works that I had done. And if it was good enough, I'd be able to sleep well. And if it wasn't good enough, which was most of the time, I wouldn't be able to sleep so well. Sometimes that judge was God, and it looks like me, uh, sort of very similar, trying to amass all of my good performance together, sort of to build a case for myself, so that hopefully I could be accepted before him. And sometimes that judge was others, other people, my, my friends, uh, my parents, my pastors. It was almost like they became my God, and it was like I would do anything to, to serve them and to get them to, to like me. I would even change who I was. I would change my appearance and put on a sort of facade to, to make myself more presentable, more acceptable, more desirable, more lovable. After I had lived here in this in, in this church community that I've been a part of here for about a year, um, really living life on life with people closer in a way that I haven't ever before, I was able to come to a place where I was able to be honest with them about what I was feeling. I was feeling a lot of anger, very frustrated, very anxious a lot, extremely just a smoldering, high temperature of a man, just very angry, because it, it seemed like I could never say no to anything. I was saying yes to all these schedule commitments and, and all the, and everything I could get my hands on and it didn't matter how well I performed or how hard I worked during those things, I could never find rest at the end of my day or at the end of my weekend. And after about a year, I became extremely burnt out and I came to my community and I just told them, I said, I'm very angry, I'm very stressed out, I need some, some help. Although that was a really hard step for me, I, I found that by sharing it, and by having a lot of conversations and, and, and just working through that in the context of, of God's church, I realized there was a lie that was at, deep at the heart of everything that was going on. And the lie was that God is not gracious and therefore I have to prove myself to him, to myself, to everyone. When God really started to, to bring, uh, bring a certain truth to light, I really started to experience rest. 
this truth is best expressed, I think, in 2 Corinthians 5. Paul, speaking about Jesus in verse 21, says, For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, a lot of my problem was that it didn't matter how much evidence or how good performance or how much hard work I brought to the table in God's courtroom. It just was never good enough. But now I realize that all along, my acceptance isn't based on what I do, but on what Jesus Christ has done on my behalf. I realize that when God the judge looks at me, he sees Christ's righteousness. And then on the cross, when God looked at Jesus, he saw my sin. And there's real rest in there for those who live their days in a courtroom of performance. There's real joy. There's real hope. There's, there's a real deep breath of, of, of rest in that. There's great freedom when you see that God is gracious. Great freedom for your life. We can't prove ourselves. And when we try, we get messed up. <coughs> we begin to think that what Jesus did on the cross just wasn't enough. And that is the greatest lie that Satan can tell us. That the work of Jesus isn't enough. And we as a community, as a family, stop believing that lie and return to the truth. God is gracious. We don't have to prove ourselves. He's already done that for us. We're about ready to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And it's a great illustration, a great picture of God's graciousness. With all the disciples seated around the table, knowing what each one would do in the coming hours. Jesus welcomed them. And he asked for them to participate. Because he's gracious. He's loving. And in that moment, their hearts were still turned towards Jesus. So as we prepare ourselves to celebrate the Lord's Supper, take a moment Say, Satan, stop pushing me into this lie. Tell your own heart, stop believing the lie. That God somehow has this little check mark against my name. And I have to make enough check marks in order to be in his name. He just says, Come. I've done it. What I did is enough. That's correct. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us to look at this story from Luke chapter 15 about the prodigal son. We pray that this would be a story that we don't forget, that we don't just go, I've heard that before. But we look at the truth in it. We look where we've been trying to prove ourselves and we, Lord, may we stand, give us the courage to stand against that. And instead, fall into your grace. In your name we pray. Amen.